Casey Williams is a lecturer in the Center for Environmental Studies at Rice University. His research examines the social and cultural dimensions of climate change and energy transition, especially the problem of climate impasse and the concept and possibility of a just transition. His writing on climate, energy, and labor has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Review of Books, Radical Philosophy, Jacobin, Dissent, and elsewhere. Reese Williams is a lecturer at University of Glasgow who works on the intersection between fantasy, narrative, and energy. His work also looks to get a better grasp on the relationship between ecology and infrastructure. He's a member of the Petrocultures Research Group and the After Oil Collective. He also organizes the Energy and Ecology Group in Glasgow. Right now, a lot of his focus is on energy, infrastructure, food, and water. You can read some of that work in Open Library of Humanities and South Atlantic Quarterly. I think one of the most important takeaways for me in this conversation was this idea that we need to leave more space for real deliberation in our politics and that that actually means we need to accept the fact of friction. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but what we call in this conversation frictionful engagements aren't really the norm in political communication. What we tend to get is a situation where frictionlessness is tacitly preferred. And so, in Casey's words, capital quietly takes the reins. And we're left with mechanisms that are meant to do all of the heavy lifting in political decision making. Reese and Casey see ways that these mechanisms, especially financial mechanisms in the climate debate, really function like a narrative device. It's the mechanism that has the agency, not us. And this is the narrative we've largely been sold, a kind of politics without politics. One of the other big things that I'd underline is Casey's challenge to those that engage with the climate crisis and who are worried about communicating the risks. He says that there's actually a real political risk involved in treating specific disasters as metonymic representatives of the climate crisis as a whole. When we bundle a highly localized disaster into an accumulation of disasters that tell us a story about climate impacts and the emergency as a whole, Casey says we risk effacing the specificity of the struggles occurring at the local level. Struggles not just against the impacts of a transforming climate, but also struggles for social and economic autonomy against global capitalism. I hadn't thought about it that way before the conversation, and that sense of being responsible to the specificity of place, places, plural, is something I've definitely taken with me from the conversation. There's a few other things I'd mention. We talk about the degrowth imaginary and questions of the scale at which infrastructure ceases to be life-giving. We talk a lot about technology as a thing that gets privileged in science fiction and in popular discourse as a driver of historical change. There's quite a bit of discussion here too about the social layers that get subsumed under technology as it gets fetishized in this way. Overall too, there's a concern here with how we've been slowly abstracted from nature as such. How we've sealed ourselves off from it by instrumentalizing all of the life around us or as much of it as we can control and colonize and commodify. So in the face of the real need to address the crisis of a destabilized climate system, they talk about what we should include in the discussion uh, that too quickly gets displaced. 
wanted to start by asking you, Reese, uh, about this piece that you wrote on sort of the Paris Climate Agreement, where you you say climate change is um, reduced in the agreement to a technical question of adaptation and mitigation, um, leading to, it feels like you're saying, a limiting of imaginable solutions that's really ruled by market and technological logics, I guess, uh, or what you call green globalized capital. You and I have talked about uh, how your thinking in general has been shaped by Anna Singh's book, Friction. And I see a lot of friction in this observation um, because Singh's main argument is that, in her words, the universal offers us the chance to participate in the global stream of humanity. We can't turn it down. And this is a problem where um, the universal in question is the post and neo-colonial universal. So I'm kind of just hoping you can give us a sense of how Singh's argument influences the way you approach like problematizing Article 10 of the Paris Agreement and more generally, I guess, the way that green globalized capital manages to diffuse what you call the most explosive politics. Uh, which are contained in like just transition and decarbonization. Hmm. Start off with a soft one, Scott. That's uh... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay. Well, yeah. So the the Article Ten, um, the the rewrite that came out of a kind of uh, like an art project almost, where the idea was that you would um, rewrite a section of the Paris Agreement to reveal or um, kind of uncover, I suppose, some of the ways that it was limiting, some of the ways that it kind of foreclosed certain ideas. And for me, that became an exercise in thinking about it as a narrative, right? Obviously, it's kind of kind of what I do. And um, the way that that Article 10 really struck me <clears throat> was the documents that are hidden behind it which you can read and which are you know part of the public record um but sort of uh queries around the kind of content of article 10 or the statements by particular member countries um or particular groups of member countries which talked about the way that climate finance worked right and how most of it went towards adaptation um, whereas very little of it goes towards mitigation. And the mitigation is is, is the kind of crux uh, of the issue for a lot of these sort of nations who are, you know, on the kind of front lines. And mm -hmm. all of that money that goes towards adaptation is then structured in particular ways. So it's structured, it seems to me, as a kind of uh, a neo-structural adjustment program where... The money is there to purchase or rent, uh, you know, technologies which are inevitably developed by Global North corporations or states, and then to kind of have them trucked over to these countries and to have that as a sort of, you know, money transfer, right? So they're giving you money only to have it back again almost immediately. And then I was mm -hmm. thinking about the way that Article 10, with that as a background, I was thinking about the way Article 10 frames climate change as something to be solved by a mechanism. And these are financial mechanisms, policy mechanisms. In this case, the mechanism is one of technology transfer. And there's something about mechanism 
as hmm. a term that I found really fascinating, right? It's like, it's kind of ahistorical somehow. It's, um, it's, it's a political action without any politics, I suppose, <clears throat> like an algorithm almost, you know, it just sort of happens. Right. Now, obviously behind the phrase mechanism are real politicized and, you know, actual actions and, and, and technology transfers is, is one example, which are deeply political, right? But they have this kind of abstracted quality when they're talked about as mechanisms in the Paris Agreement. And I just thought that was a really interesting narrative technique, I suppose, um, which mm. is deployed in this policy document for making the story of climate change one of, I suppose, if we're going to, you know, drag Anna Singh kicking and screaming into this conversation, then it would be uh, like a frictionless story almost, right? The, the, the Paris Agreement, and Article 10 in particular, it has this kind of smoothness to the solution, which is to say, by the defining of climate change as a particular kind of problem, then these solutions, which appear within the narrative of the Paris Agreement to be to be readily available and, and doable within the kind of political parameters that are available to it. Um, you know, climate change isn't a kind of frictionful thing anymore. It becomes this smoothly copable with issue, but only when it's framed in the way that allows for you know, the, the solutions that we have ready to hand without any real change um, mm. be the correct solutions. I have been reading a lot about climate economics and there's this mechanism called the social cost of carbon that is literally like about, um, you know, reducing the social cost of carbon to a dollar amount. Uh, it's a financial instrument and it, you know, it, it it's basically, it comes down to two things, damages to infrastructure and choosing the so-called discount rate. And that latter term, the discount rate, I find chilling. Like it names the degree to which we acknowledge or discount the effects of emitting greenhouse gases on future generations of people. And like when Donald Trump came into office, his administration dropped the discount rate to almost nothing, artificially lowering the kind of social cost of carbon uh, and like disregarding future damage. They also wrote off the rest of the world by limiting the estimation of damages to just the US, right? So like, absolutely, it's about kind of trying to create this frictionless context where these instruments sort of stand in for engaging with the climate crisis. Casey, did you want to follow up at all? Sure. Um... Yeah, no, that was that was great, Reese. You know, it, it makes me think the um, even loss and damage, which has become you know something that policymakers and climate activists have been talking about more. Even even when loss and damage was affirmed at the uh, COP in Egypt last year, you know, it was affirmed through the creation of a mechanism, which will involve creating study groups and <laughs> that could take years to devise a plan for, you know, allocating money towards compensating you know, particular places or people for irreversible damages caused by climate change. So even what is sometimes seen as the most political or politicized version of uh, climate, you know, international climate negotiations is also framed in these techno-managerial terms. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right that it's climate policy, both at the kind of international level, but also down to some of the local implementation 
happens in this post-political paradigm where um, the question of you know, deliberation, sort of messiness, the kind of frictionful engagements that are required to negotiate between different interests and make claims on people with power and actually demand certain things that meet particular specified interests, all of that is kind of wished away by the idea that we can create mechanisms to adapt, but also to mitigate. And there's a great article by geographer um, Derek Swingadow on the post-politics of climate change. And, and he's writing about mitigation, and his argument is that kind of reducing the climate problem to a problem of carbon, and he calls it fetishism of carbon, um, creates the impression that climate change can be solved through the elimination of carbon output and then the creation of carbon sinks, carbon capture, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, when it comes to adaptation, the politics is a, is a little bit different, but what it amounts to is maintaining the fantasy, one, that pretty much everywhere on Earth can adapt and that it can be, it can be done in a way that preserves the basic integrity of that place or the people in that place. And second, that adaptation can actually be a vector for progress on the kind of familiar, according to the sort of familiar narratives of modern and now, you know, like neoliberal development. So Roman Feli's book, The Great Adaptation, which I wrote something about for dissent, is really about how the international adaptation regime functions as a mechanism, you could say, of accumulation by dispossession across the globe. And what happens basically is the imperative to adapt in a particular place unleashes money from the Green Climate Fund or from the World Bank or from a particular national government that's used to fund development projects that ultimately amount to pulling people who are on the margins of capitalist economy more deeply into the capitalist economy. So this happens through something like microfinance, which will turn small farmers into vectors of capital accumulation because now they're saddled with debt that they have to pay off with interest. And so, you know, use that money to buy like upgraded agricultural technologies that then insert them into a whole kind of mechanized export-oriented agricultural economy. Um, or in the case of Bangladesh, which, which um, Kasha Paprakhi, who's an anthropologist at LSE, has, has written about, it's about transforming the entire kind of agrarian system from smallholder cultivation of rice to industrial shrimp farming. And this has all kinds of you know, really significant consequences. But um, the point is that in the depoliticized or even kind of anti-political envi environment of current climate you know, policy negotiations, what happens is that capital sort of quietly takes the reins and uses the, all of the money floating around to kind of further integrate marginal places into um, global flows of capital. Hmm. Yeah. And like, I think 
that gives us like a lot of um, like vivid detail for understanding like what you're both calling the kind of frictionful version of climate adaptation and mitigation. And, you know, I wanted to kind of build on that by, again, dragging Anna Seng into the conversation. You know, there's this pivotal moment in friction where she talks about the end of the 1980s and the drawing of global connections between a hot, dry summer in the U.S. and the the destruction of rainforests in Amazonia, as she says. Um, We are obviously currently in a moment of unprecedented global incineration fueled by climate change. For Singh, there is value in as much as we can steering clear, she says, of like general circulation models that represent the problem of global heating in these abstract, mathematical, instrumental, mechanistic ways. She she says there might be more power in talking about like she she says the romance of nature, uh, which gives grandeur and autonomy to the natural world. So like I'm wondering in this moment if we can think through the idea that we need to deal more with the trauma that people globally are feeling. You know, so Casey, that piece that you wrote for dissent, you say that in defiance of climate despair, we need to demand answers about what exactly adaptation looks like, um, why it's considered necessary, how it's carried out, and for whose benefit. Um, I wonder if you could just speak more about that idea of adaptation as like a fatalistic thing. You know, again, in terms of like the mechanisms versus like literally trying to engage with the the trauma of the loss of nature and these attachments. So this this point about fatalism, I think, is is really important. You know, part of the part of the argument that's coming out of this scholarship on climate change post politics is that um, the way that we tell the story of climate change, both in the present but also in our speculations about how it will affect places in the future has really significant consequences for what kinds of interventions are considered legitimate or necessary. And so, you know, in the case of, in the case of Bangladesh, the frequent and really incessant characterization of Bangladesh as ground zero for climate change, the most vulnerable country on earth, you know, doomed to be, half underwater in the next 30 years if certain actions aren't taken. While that kind of rhetoric is, of course, understandable and has a certain scientific basis, it also creates an image of a place that is consigned to total annihilation. And in, in, and as a result, creates the, creates the possibility or even the necessity for immediate interventions, even without deliberation. And you know, this is a kind of emergency situation, a post-political situation. And in the case of Bangladesh, what it has meant is that policies which favor, you know, shrimp exporters, among other kind of large, large capitalists, get get favored and kind of get rammed through without much pushback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a, we can talk about the politics of that, but just on the kind of narrative and aesthetic side, what this tells me is that there is some risk in, in treating particular places or particular disasters as, uh, you know, metonymic 
representatives of the climate crisis as a whole. Hmm. So, so you know, you're talking about connecting the dots. You need to get away from global circulation models. You know, to me, the alternative, which is focusing on specific sites as representative cases, as representative disasters, comes with its own risks. And I think you know, Singh even brings this up when she talks about kind of the transit between the particular and the universal. You know, paying, paying attention to the particular also means being careful about how we use the particular to make claims about the universal, about how we scale it up. And some things cannot be scaled up without losing uh, a real sense of their particularity. So in the case of you know, southwestern, southwestern Bangladesh, the, what gets lost in treating that place as ground zero for climate change, even though, of course, climate change does have really significant effects there, is that an entire colonial history, um, which totally transformed the landscape, and affects you know, how water moves through it, where people have settled, what kinds of things they can grow, what kinds of things they can do for work, et cetera. All of that risks getting subsumed into a climate story. As far as you know, sort of a just form of adaptation, what does that look like? You know, the conclusion I think I've come to is that you need a political process that is deliberative, that's messy, that is about people who are affected by not just climate change, but the colonial, neo-colonial histories that create the conditions in which climate change unfolds. You know, those people need to have real political power. And um, in Bangladesh, there's this group of, you know, landless peasants who are trying to reclaim the land. They're like squatting on fields, trying to re turn them to rice cultivation. They don't talk about climate change at all, but what they're doing can be understood as a kind of just climate adaptation insofar as it's about returning land ownership. It's, it's land reform, you know, it's classic land reform, mm -hmm. returning land ownership to, to the tiller. You know, those kinds of things need to be understood as potential vectors for climate adaptation or a just form of climate adaptation, even when they are talking about climate change at all. Hmm. When Casey talks in such kind of eloquent detail about the, the, the specificities of that kind of Bangladesh situation in particular, what occurs to me, I suppose, is um, the, the sort of larger narrativity of that, um, which is a little bit more sort of modular in its um, applicability, right? So the idea that Climate change in that situation is posited as the kind of overarching determiner of the situation. It causes the other causes that, to disappear behind it, right? It sort of, it sort right. of obfuscates the other things that we might think of as also perhaps causing the crisis. Um, and as, as a sort of very rough analogy, it reminds me of this idea that, you know, what we're facing at the moment in, well, in the UK, for example, but in lots of other countries in, you know, with the um, the droughts and the shortages of the the shortages of water, um, it's it's not a, a a water problem as such, but it's a modern water problem. You know, there's not a, an issue with water, sort of, uh, you know, full stop. It's it's the the kind of systems and infrastructures of of organizing that water, which are sort of under threat, right? The kind of um, the way that we've developed. 
to sort of uh, facilitate and move and circulate that water, that system is not sort of capable of adapting or, or capable of handling the current kind of situation, right? So this idea that climate change as the sort of determiner and other causes disappear, I think what's interesting about that is this idea that it really narrows down the number of responses that you can have to the situation. And it makes certain stories more persuasive and it makes others sort of uh, unbelievable. So it makes some ways of, of, of adapting to it or some, or even just the word adaption, right? I'm already falling into my own trap in a sense. Like that it makes some ways of dealing with it sort of believable and other ways uh, unbelievable in that sense. And, and it's all about, for me, I think um, one of the key things is this idea of, of believability or, or persuasiveness, right? There's this mm -hmm. great kind of line um, in Imre Zeman's article is quite an old one now um system failure it's not i don't think one of the key kind of points that he makes in that article but it's always really stuck with me it's just this moment where he says that um the stories that uh, have power or the stories that that find themselves most persuasive are the ones which uh resonate with or link up to already held beliefs ideologies values and uh, and systems of power right sure. those stories are in some sense more smoothly uh, integrated into our kind of worldview and, and, and we sort of believe them more quickly. And when I read that line, it really stuck with me um, as a kind of uh, elapsed sci-fi scholar. <laughs> um, there's a really nice way of thinking about science fiction. So there's a long history in, in science fiction studies of comparing it to fantasy and comparing it favorably to fantasy. And particularly on the left, right? This is a long argument. I won't go into it too much, but um, from the 70s to about the, the early 2000s, it was very normal to privilege science fiction on the left above fantasy because fantasy was irrational um, and unable to sort of deal with the world uh, in, in a kind of like concrete political way, whereas science fiction was supposedly rational in some sense. and uh, Hard, hard yeah, sci-fi. Yeah. yeah, precisely, right, yeah. And, and, and more able, therefore, to, to connect to the world and to critique it. Now, more recently, I think there's been some really interesting arguments against that. And, I've, and I very much believe these arguments, right? Which is to say that the rationality of science fiction is itself the ideology of science fiction, right? It is itself the kind of mode of persuasiveness because it's not actually rational, right? It's fantasy. It's just a particular strain of fantasy that uses tools or uh, appearances of rationality to persuade. And I think that is, is, is very much what's happening here, right? And I think that's particularly relevant because the, the narratives of response to climate change are science fictional narratives. And the rationality of those narratives are not rational as such, but they are somehow in tune with the prevailing rationality. So they're the ones which are in tune in that sense. And, and science fiction particularly is, is a genre where it deals with historical change, right? But again, if you think about it critically, it, I think it deals with historical change in a particular way, which is to say that it privileges technology as a driver of historical change, and it privileges certain kinds of agents as drivers of technology and historical change. And I think... The, the, the narratives of adapting to climate change that we have are science fictional in that sense, right? They privilege 
technological responses. They privilege a sense of, um, so, you know, ad- adaptation as an idea has loss built into it in the same way that science fiction has loss built into it, which is to say, you know, things will not be the same. You will lose what you have now and you will have something different. And the mechanism for that difference will be some kind of technological newness, right? Mm-hmm. And I think those kinds of narratives and the powers that they have uh, link up crucially to the way that the problem has been framed, right? So there's there's two sides to it, right? So stories gain power when they promise to overcome a particular problem, promissory narratives, as as sociologists call them, gain power when they promise to overcome a problem. So the problem itself is the ground on which the story thrives, right? So before the story even happens, there is this groundwork, you might put it, that, that has to be laid in terms of what the problem is in the first place. And all of that's very limited, I think, by this situation that, that Casey is describing, right, where Climate change is the determining cause, absent all of the kind of, you know, social, historical and political kind of factors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's only one way of, of, of really adapting to it. And then the crucial idea of the urgency of that adaption is um, a way that, again, curtails the number of different kinds of stories that might seem persuasive. And they force us into choosing or believing in or, or allowing through that kind of filter only a few stories that have a particular science fictional plot trajectory, which have a particular idea of technological agency and change, and which ultimately only have a certain set of applicable characters or protagonists, right? Only a particular set of, of people who have agency within that story structure. And the way that I would really briefly um, illustrate it, that there's a kind of nice, a nice example of this, I think, in, in the food space, right? Right. So I was hoping you would get into this, actually. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, so the 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 food example I think is is a really good one because the push to urgency and the framing of climate change as the determining factor presents the transition from an agrarian to an industrial economy as the best way to adapt to variable weather in lower income countries. So, in the food space, in industrialized agricultural countries, as much as anywhere else. There is now a push to adapt to the variable weather by moving towards a different kind of even more intensive, even more technologized uh, form of food production, right? Which is, you know, you can call it agriculture 4.0 or uh, new food production, but it's focused around things like uh, fermentation and very much like contained lab production of alternative proteins. And the thing that's fascinating for me about these technologies is that they have all of the hallmarks of a science fictional story that solves the problem that I was talking about earlier. And they speak to uh, adapting to changing weather by sealing off from that weather, right? So we don't have to deal anymore with the uh, soil degradation, the uncertain seasons, the increasing kind of problems of like, you know, fires and so on. We don't have to deal with any of that stuff because the food happens in a sealed kind of container. And that way of cutting off um, from the kind of natural world and the natural rhythms, this appears to be, for me anyway, an intensification of the same kind of logic that we've had for a while. And also in some way captures this idea of progress, right? Technology as a way of of, of kind of insisting us, uh, as in um, building a cyst around us, right? Encapsulating us from the world and saving us from it in that sense. There are other kinds of of, um, food futures And 
just to take a kind of aesthetic approach to this, when you look at images of new food technologies and so on versus images of, uh, you know, images on the kind of agroecological websites, those images are difficult to pass as future oriented, the agroecological ones. And there's something just built in, I think, to the to the cultural discourse around what future is that makes those images feel or seem past. And mm-hmm. and that's, I think, a re- like it's just a really basic problem in the struggle to determine what kind of future we want is that one of the stories feels almost automatically future to us and the other doesn't. And I, just, I think that's like a really fundamental issue and I don't know what to do about it, but I just, I think I just wanted to raise it here. Yeah, the, the past in the pastoral, right? Um, and the future in renewables, like that, you know, nature's renewal relies on renewables um, is sort of a now increasingly difficult to contest narrative. Uh, but uh, Casey, I want to give you a chance to uh, join the thread here, uh, if you have anything to add. That's really great, Reese. I, I, I am really taken by this description of... Um, or this claim that kind of what's believable or what's persuasive about uh, the way that climate change is discussed in kind of these spaces of techno-managerial deliberation or policymaking is the sort of the same thing that's persuasive about science fiction or that, or that makes it, or that is at the heart of its ideology. I think that's like a really smart argument. Um, and I also think that, I mean, I think Reese is right. You know, what's what's persuasive about certain promissory narratives is that they fit with a model of modernization or progress that tends towards the rationalization of the natural world. And so, you know, the further away we move from contingency, from the variable, from risk towards something that's hyper-controlled, even down to the kind of genetic level. You know, the, the idea is the closer we move to kind of a full rationalization of the world and really a full kind of human autonomy. I mean, the, the stakes here are really a kind of freedom, you know, specific idea of freedom that emerges from the Enlightenment that sees total command over our environs as what it means to be a free, autonomous subject. Um, You know, related to this, I think, is there are two things. The first is this image of agroecology or the way that agroecology can feel kind of past in relation to uh, the, the conflation of future as such with the intensification of, of rational industrial production. You know, there's a sense in which the certain currents on the left lean into the pastness or presumed pastness of something like agroecology and deliberately posit their interventions as a kind of return, a kind of nostalgic return to something before industrial capitalism or whatever. And sometimes this argument is made with reference to uh, 
people or communities that are presumed to be pre-modern. And I'm thinking here about, you know, the fetishization of, and I think there is a fetishization sometimes of certain indigenous communities and indigenous practices as representing the kind of best alternative to the kind of horrors of, of modernization and the presumption that modernization is the only future available to us. And I think this is related as well to the, the way that certain places and people are asked to stand in for the climate crisis as a whole. In a similar way, certain people and places are asked to stand in for an alternative. And I, I would want to pause over that and kind of question whether what kind of, what kind of work is being done in that figuration um, what sorts of specificity or particularity might be lost there, what it means to think about scaling that sort of thing. There is a, an ideology of scalability that Sam writes about that sort of aligns it with the like totally fungible world of abstract value, it aligns it with the capitalist project. But of course there, there are real problems like well, we need to make sure that everyone has enough food, right? We need to make sure that everyone has a place to live. We need to try to find ways to deal with the problems that climate change is exacerbating on the global scale of the crisis. And um, so, you know, thinking really seriously about what it means to take hyper-particular forms of food production, say, and apply them to a problem that's global in nature seems, seems really significant to me. No. Yeah. It's uh, agreed. Right. Like the, you know, I think the, the food systems scholar, Julie Guthman calls it like problem closure, right? Like the, the, the problem is closed or foreclosed um, before we can um, really engage with it in its complexity because of this like groundwork that's been laid before the conversation started and I am curious to get to the question of like, what is our ground if we have one, you know, like, um, is it merely questioning forever who gets posited as the particular protagonists of, uh, let's say transition or more boldly transformation, um, you know, and, and how do we kind of, um, articulate our relationship to technology within this like laying of an alternative solar, let's say, uh, or emancipatory groundwork. Um, but I wanted to kind of pick up on the, the thread of, of just food, right? Um, because I think it's, it's maybe not discussed enough uh, and itself has been, you know, as Reese's argued, kind of captured by uh, corporate logics and even captured in some ways by a high profile climate critic like George Mobio, who, you know, has this book uh, that talks about the need for a food system where there is less input required for more output in order to kind of stave off the worst effects of climate change. Um, you know, like I mentioned the, the setting of the discount rate, uh, it's often thought of in terms of like the loss of crops, the lo the loss of agriculture, but it's like purely in economic terms, which does sort of close off the problem in a way that feels, you know, deeply unethical basically. So like, I wonder, you know, in terms of talking about the massive loss of food and the traumatic loss of people to climate impacts, if we should like worry about how we frame 
the costs or consequences of climate change, universal versus particular, for example. You know, when we're thinking specifically about food, um, like we're tempted to sort of play within the rules of the game and talk about food just in terms of energy in, energy out within the sort of global system of circulation. Um, but Reese, as you've you know written in your article on preci- precision fermentation, it does feel as though it might be worthwhile to produce a more explicitly emotional and ethical way of talking about like our responsibility to protect the planet um, in order to make, you know, to preserve these food systems that like are obviously very fragile. Um, And I'm actually like thinking a lot about this one scene from a a recent science fiction, like mini series uh, called Extrapolations, um, which I don't know if either of you have seen. It dreams up a techno utopian scenario for the climate crisis long into the future, extrapolating way into the future from our current moment. And at the end, there's a scene where Kit Harrington's character is sitting at the dinner table eating perhaps the last actual meat in the world. And he's shameless about savoring this rare beef um, and like doubles down when someone asks him if it's wrong to exclude others from the experience of non-synthetic food, right? It's as though he doesn't even understand the question, uh, let alone like see it as an accusation. Uh, But there's something in that scene that leads me to think that we're extrapolating into the future from current efforts at disruption by companies like Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, Air Protein, and Solar Foods uh, that's like unethical, right? Um, However we define unethical. So like, I guess the question is, how do we accuse companies like these of actually callously representing the animals we eat, for example, as somehow just things that we should improve on through technology? The, the, the great, uh, for me, fascinatingly interesting, um, Rethink X uh, kind of think tank, right? And they produce these mm-hmm. reports on energy mm-hmm. and uh, food and transportation, and they are this really brilliant kind of primary text for uh, a specific boosterish understanding of, of the future as, you know, utopian, technologically kind of liberated, um, you know, equality and, 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 and uh, diversity and decentralization and uh, abundance are all going to be brought about, right, by, you know, solar panels and uh, alternative protein production and, all of the kind of classic utopian qualities that are always hung on every new technological advance are here again, right? They're found here again in this new post-internet type of technology, right? A kind of information technology, biotechnology, all of these kinds of extra granular ways of, 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 of controlling nature, I suppose, and, and, and producing the things that we need. And what I find brilliant in in one of those rethink x um reports the one on food is this little box uh on one of the pages where they make a direct comparison between uh the cow and the fermentation vat Mm. um because they both produce protein this is the this is the uh, this is the kind of equivalence right that they make And the little box is titled Unbundling the Cow, which I love as, as a oh, phrase. Oh, man. <laughs> which, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of beautiful, right? But, but like, what it's doing is a really powerful, um, what it's doing is a really powerful ontological move. 
it's it's saying you know and it, and it's kind of revealing a truth that we're already inhabiting right the cow as a machine for producing protein we don't treat sure. cows on a global level as animals with feelings right we treat them as protein producing machines so it's not doing anything that we don't already do it's just making it extremely explicit and i think partly because there's now an alternative to compare it to right which just which just surfaces the kind of under, underlying logic of of the current system and, and and just demonstrates its purity i suppose in this next technological leap right the rationalization of the natural world like taken to its extreme limit exactly right so it's yeah. like okay so it, you know it's, it's basic argument is you know here's how much protein the cow produces for this much input and this is how long it takes and so on and so forth and then here's the fermentation vat and you know it's just way more efficient right um and, and that's it that's the basic thing that it says but but it but it moves the cow onto a different ontological plane it's no longer an animal it's purely a protein production machine um but you know as i say it, it, we already treat it that way right so it's i don't think that's new i just think it's unashamed maybe um because you know the whole the whole drive or one of the key argumentative um drives of these new technologies are that they are just more efficient and then they tag on you know obviously there's not going to be as much animal uh, cruelty and on all of these kinds of um you know there's less pollution there's less fossil fuel input and the difficult thing about being critical about these new technologies is that on the surface of it at least those things are not untrue so you know yes i want a world with less animal cruelty yes i want a world with less fossil fuel inputs yes i want a world that doesn't kind of raise endless rainforests for the sake of growing crops for cows right and these technologies promise all of that but then i feel like you have to pause for a second precisely because of of what you're saying right what are the kind of ethical implications of this future that we're running headlong into there are interested parties who are behind it they are positing what appears to be a very desirable future for food production but it is nonetheless a future in which they will be very rich right it's not like they don't have any skin in the game in this case and the question that i suppose i ended up coming down to was what does this food production technique say about and i hopefully this goes some way towards answering your question what does it say about our relationship to nature and i think for me at least it's hard to oppose it because of all the really obvious benefits but there is something underneath it that is really troubling um because if we are you know halfway through let's say a process of 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 cutting ourselves off from the natural world then this just exacerbates it to the nth degree right mm-hmm. um the arguments of people who are behind it so you mentioned George Monbiot that you know the eco-modernists are the, are the sort of the ground zero for this kind of thing right and their basic argument is is one of um so decoupling growth from environmental impact and they believe that through innovation we can we can do that we can decouple growth from from ecological impact and you know these food technologies are one of the basic ways of doing that and then the argument goes you know we use less land we use less water we use less fossil fuels and all of that stuff is freed up and it can be rewilded and nature can be left to itself and so on and there is hand in hand 
a kind of deeply Promethean technological saviour drive to these narratives and a deeply romanticised understanding of nature, right? And the two things are separated and kept separate. And that division is completely necessary to the success of the narrative. Um, you know, we, we, we open up nature and we leave it to do its thing, essentially. And I just, I find myself wondering what happens to some idea of, of, of a kind of laboring relationship to nature, let's say. It, you know, it, it has this kind of quality, um, the one that they pose, has this quality of, you know, the, the cliched backpacker, right? Or, you know, the, the romantic uh, wanderer above a sea of fog, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, this kind of lone individual who, whose relationship to nature is one of aesthetic appreciation and, uh, you know, a moment for self-reflection, let's say. And that's a very thin, I think, and degraded relationship to, to nature, right? Um, but that's the one that's promised. It's like, you know, nature's over there, we're over here, we're separate, except for when you go camping, broadly speaking. It seems that this kind of separation between modernization and a kind of romantic, contemplative relationship to nature is present really from the beginning. Um, you know, it's part of how uh, nature, in the, in the U.S. context at least, how nature kind of comes to acquire its meaning over the course of the 19th century, where, you know, the progress of the Industrial Revolution and urbanization in the U.S. was paired with the creation of the national parks and that sort of thing. And it's not a laboring relationship to nature. It's a completely separate one. You know, if we think about labor as a as the kind of hinge in the metabolic relation between the social and the natural a hinge that actually makes the separation impossible to maintain um you know it's a it's a process that is about mutual transformation and you know collective kind of production and it's something that gets us away too from these kind of linear teleological narratives of of the future the thing that always interests me about the eco-modernists is part, especially the socialist eco-modernists, which are, are out there, you know, who argue that um, maximizing efficiency, producing more with less input, especially less energy inputs, is the key to something like, to a material abundance that could sustain a truly egalitarian society. And of course, this is very appealing. And Reese has talked a lot about the ideology of the promise. And I think it's extremely uh, important to foreground the ideology of the promise because there are real problems that do need to be solved. And it can be very tempting to, uh, you know, buy into or accept the promissory notes that are given to us, especially when they seem so familiar and part of how we have come to understand the world. In any case, the argument that's made by the socialist eco-modernists is that we can't go back. And it says, look, we have, we have already gone through industrialization in, in much of the world. It's sort of taking root in much of the rest of the world. We're not, we're not going back, right? And so it, it narrows, you know, as Reese was describing, our possible futures to ones that seem aligned with the presumed trajectory modernization, which is absolutely about maximizing efficiency, 
um, creating more with less and then kind of hiving off parts of the world for parks or, or, or places of self-discovery or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the part of what reintroducing the question of labor does is, I think, get us away from those linear trajectories and help us realize that the kind of transformations, mutual transformations that happen in the labor process, whether it's a you know just you doing something in your garden or larger scale production process is really about remaking the world anew every single time. You know, the, the, the process of making something, even, even if it's constrained by certain path dependencies in the, in the factory or whatever, is really about opening up a moment of radical contingency where we can mm-hmm. pick our path again. You know, because the world has to be reproduced in every moment, because nothing persists on its own without the application of labor. The possibility for radical change is always there. Um, and foregrounding that, I think, is really important for you know, any kind of emancipatory politics, especially one that can get us off these tracks, these kind of narrowed possibilities that Reese was describing. You know, that kind of takes us a, a long way along in terms of like thinking through, I think, um, the ideology of the promises you say, but also like ideologies of scalability and the mm. relationship to like technology and, and just like the profit making death machine and everything. Yeah. Um, I have got, okay. So I've got, I've got two things. I don't know how well the first thing fits in like a podcast structure, but when Casey was talking then there was something really jumped out with me and I've just, I've just found it. Um, you guys know, John Jordan, um, the, the, the poet from Harlem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um she she had this project um with Buckminster Fuller um Skyrise for Harlem. Um it was like a kind of utopian idea of improving Harlem, right? Um but but anyway, in one of the letters that she writes to 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 Buckminster Fuller, there's this bit that is just I don't know, it's just so evocative I think of what we were just talking about. So she's talking about how she, she got away to the country um, recently. She's like, dear Mr. Fuller, I got away to the country recently. Um, and as the plane kind of, you know, goes over the hills of the countryside, she can see no one. Um, but there was no tangible obstacle to the imagining of how this land, these contours of growth and rise and seasonal definition could nurture and extend human life. There was no obvious site that might be cleared for housing, no particular grove or patch that visually loomed as more habitable, and yet, I surmised no menace of elements inimical to life, blah, blah, blah. But then this bit, um, it seemed that any stretch, every slope provided living possibilities. Uh, just a tent and a few matches uh, could convert a randomly selected green space into human shelter. And this is the key bit. Perhaps one explanation is that such land clearly suggests the activities required for construction of efficient shelter and the requirements imply necessary labor both feasible and quickly rewarding for human beings to accomplish. And then she goes on to contrast it to, to the state of Harlem, right, where um, there is no uh, labour available that directly affects the manners of existence and there are no sources of sustenance and no sources of power for control and change. And and I think, do, does that, do you know why I'm bringing that up? Does that make sense? It's like, oh yeah, there's, there's something, there's something to this idea that, that the, the 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 further down a particular path we go, the more we strip ourselves of 
the, the, the laboring relationship to nature, precisely because our environment becomes one in which there is no, you know, we often think of cities and so on as being like ultra available for to, to us, you know, like, like we can interact with cities in, in, in myriad different ways. But actually, there is this, perhaps I think John Jordan is, is, is expressing a slightly different side of that, where, where the city disallows many kinds of interaction, actually, right? Um, the, these ideas of like a laboring relationship to the environment. Mm. And, you know, th- there are other kinds of, of landscapes which, which provide that very openly and easily. I find it, I find it an interesting idea. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, that I think you can, it can be forgiven for being pastoralist um, because it, it, you know, the, the converse of that is this built environment that has been sort of evolved behind our backs um, and that becomes difficult to see as infrastructure. And I think it does give us um, sort of a useful segue into talking about this particular concept of infrastructure, which I'm surprised hasn't sort of explicitly come up yet. But um, in terms of like the city or just like any sort of urbanized sort of uh, environment disallowing certain actions, um, you know, our, our colleagues and comrades Darren Barney and Jennifer Wenzel have written some really interesting things on infrastructure that kind of um, keep us within the sort of purview of like thinking about I guess green growth or the the kinds of you know narrativity that causes certain um, answers to appear convincing and then disappear uh, um, other kinds of responses like um, you know Jennifer's main curiosity. Uh, in her piece, which is titled Forms of Life, is around the visibility and or invisibility of infrastructure, while like Darren is really arguing for seeing infrastructure as the form of politics itself, Mm -hmm. where, as he puts it, um, colonialism and white supremacy are political forms that happen as infrastructure. I think Mm -hmm. like what he's doing is making a temporal move, I guess, of like marking infrastructure as a thing that happened that was posed as having to happen uh but that was a choice um you know i think that's worth kind of bringing into conversation and bringing into this conversation jennifer's point that um different aspects of infrastructure are as she puts it vehicles for imagining national community or producing the state Mm -hmm. so what's going on here in terms of the way that the existence of infrastructure either exposes or masks the existence of the way of organizing the world through a specific form of energy like oil, right? Um, uh, By making our cities entirely organized around like automobility, for example, Mm -hmm. is, is like that foreclosure. And so what do you think are some, I guess like this is, this is what you're getting at anyway, like some available strategies for like defamiliarizing infrastructure. Okay. Well, I, I I think I'll start with, with a little, call back um, to something I wanted to mention earlier, because I, I think it might end up being a nice way into it. Um, cool. There's something about the way that we talk about the the dominant mode of, infra- um, of industrial production um, and, you know, uh, anyway, modernity in general. We, we use this term rationalized, right? And, and Casey uh, at one point used the term hyper-rationalized, um, mm. which you know, I, I, as a kind of critical term, I understand. And I'm wondering to what extent we are ceding the territory of, of, of struggle 
or the terrain of struggle would be the phrase. Um, when we use that word purely in a negative way. So I'm thinking about um, at the moment, there's a lot of interest, for example, uh, you know, in Glasgow, but also in lots of places in, in the idea of nature based solutions. Right. And, you know, they have problems and, and you know, not like a kind of perfect panacea for everything, but I'm right. interested but like in green infrastructure. Yeah. Green infrastructure, yeah, exactly. But but what I'm interested in is their place-based specificities, right? And this goes back to I think a lot of stuff that, that Casey's been saying um, in, in in his last response. So I'm interested particularly in the place-based nature of them. And when whether we think about energy or food or water, you know, there is an idea that there are universal solutions like uh, you know. Um, alternative proteins and so on, which, you know, can be placed anywhere. That's their whole vibe, right? It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what the weather is. We just This is how you're going to make food. Whereas this place-based way of, of, of thinking about things, which isn't only something which we are uh, in danger of losing in certain countries, which are going to be brutally affected by climate change, but it's also, interestingly, something that we are trying to create uh, in you know, in other areas, mostly in the global north and so on, I think, you know, local kind of councils and so on are really interested in these place-based solutions to these questions. Mm -hmm. So there's it's almost a it's almost a, a, a parabola, I guess, right, where you come back to the the notion of thinking specifically with place for what were previously large-scale universal infrastructures like energy and food and so on, and if we take that horizon of locality i suppose of, of place-basedness as as the space in which we're thinking then a lot of different kinds of solutions present themselves because the ground of your thought has to be the specificity of the place itself so if you're going to be producing food you need to think about what the land can provide right you need to think about what's best grown there and so on and so forth if you're thinking about energy, then similar questions arise, right? Is it best for solar panels in this place or wind turbines in this place or, right. you know, geothermal bores, right? It's like hyper-local at that point. You know, there are very specific places where that kind of technology works. And that kind of specificity to place, um, you know, there's dangers there of, of autarky, right, of, of, of becoming sort of... Uh, closed off from the outside world it raises lots of interesting political questions when you start thinking about sovereignty in those terms um, as a kind of place-based sovereignty and, and questions of identity emerge around that as well sometimes problematic mm. but i find that place that return to place-based thinking interesting when you take place and locality as the ground for your solutions then rationality takes on a slightly different tenor because mm rationality then becomes actually about the specificities and entanglements of place rather than a kind of universal one size fits all rationality that I think is kind of what we mean when we talk about the, like the hyper rationalization of industrial production, for example, um, rationality, which is not modular, which is not transportable in quite the same way, but which is grounded in place. And it's still rationality right because all that means is you know thinking with reason and logic given the kind of context and terms that you're dealing with you know agroecology is rational right there's an argument to be made there for, for conflicting or contesting rationalities and in many ways 
the global industrial production system is deeply irrational, actually. Yeah, chaos. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. And maybe the, maybe the argument that, that that's best made here is 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 that right? Is is right. to contest the grounds of rationality actually by what we yeah. mean by that in some sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the average distance that food travels to where I am, Nova Scotia, is four thousand kilometers. There's nothing rational about that. So absolutely, that that idea of um, reengaging with the the entanglement that one has with with the place that one lives is is like uh, potentially powerful and gets us away from this sort of contemplative or merely appreciative relationship to like ecology. It, it lays a different kind of groundwork that might be more radically contingent, uh, to use the term that Casey used. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I really like this idea of reaffirming the rational. And, right. you, know, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put all of the, you know, critical eggs in that basket just because there's a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of line of thinking that suggests that kind of pointing out the irrationality of capitalism is, you know, inflicting some kind of moral wound on it. But of course it's not, <laughs> you know, like it, it's irrational, it's hypocritical, you know, we, we know this, but I, but I like the, the flip side of that, which is to affirm that what is rational. And it's related, I think, to this, this quote from June Jordan is to Think about the affordances of the place and the invitation that that place is extending for a kind of transformative labor that would produce something that's more rational in the sense of sustaining life in a way that uh, can itself be sustained over long mm. periods of time. Mm. Um, and I think that you know the question, another question that's raised here, and, and by the question of place-based solutions and of infrastructure goes to, to the, the point about autarky that, that Reese mentioned, you know, what are the mechanisms of relationships of solidarity and exchange between places mm. that are not modeled on the uh, kind of abstraction of everything into the same, that are not modeled on the kind of uh, modern, the modernist vision of, of infrastructure, although I actually have some affinity for that, you know, these grand infrastructure projects that project a kind of image of, um, you know, in the post-colonial context, like a nation emerging from the chains of colonization, you know, there's something very powerful about the kind of binding that that, that like a great bridge or dam or something does. But how do we think beyond that towards, you know, relations of mutual exchange and, and encounter that can connect people in places, but can do that in a way that doesn't erase the specificity of each place um, and which doesn't impose some kind of, you know, prefabricated universal logic onto, you know, each, each specific location. And that's an, that's an open question. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly what, what that looks like or should look like. I, th I think a, a really, f f like really, really interesting bit to pull out from that for me is um, what it means for the people, right? I think you rightly keep stressing the idea of of, of community and solidarity and 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 um, the possibilities for people in place. And I think we have an idea increasingly of ideas of things like energy citizens, right? 
and you can extend that to food citizens and you know water citizens and all it means really is um often a, a fairly truncated attempt to engage the public right the general public in the conditions of production of these things but usually it's a pretty weak sort of uh, version of that but what might it look like if you know some really basic differences were installed like ownership over those systems i think you know these kinds of things are, are are really key if you want to have energy citizens then you know having some part to play in it and some ownership over it i think that would be a, make a really interesting cultural difference I, i don't know exactly what it would be and there's always the you know the kind of oscar wilde issue of the problem with socialism is there's too many meetings and so on but you know you don't have to have endless meetings necessarily it's just more about a, a, a sense of ownership i think um which is more possible in a place-based approach to these questions and and i'll just add as well on a kind of technical point i had a really interesting conversation with with a colleague in engineering um the other day and she's really engaged in uh transition projects and for her the biggest question about transition was the actual technical necessity and i found that interesting because we often talk about it as a kind of social or political desire but there is a technical necessity for these place based local energy solutions because the large scale infrastructure that we currently have and the grid in particular right as 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 a kind of bottleneck will not be capable of dealing with the 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 future energy demands and the kind of renewable energy transition that we have so there will be some of that but there will also be a need like an actual technical need for locally governed locally organized place based energy solutions and i just i just found the fact that an engineer in the know as it were understands understands what i think of as a deeply political demand to be a technical demand as well um promising actually <laughs> that's good to that's good to hear um and and speaks to the the kind of c- complex nature of the term uh that one of you used like affordances which i see coming up a lot in the the work that i've recently been reading um it's a it's an interestingly like subtly complex word um that i don't see like unpacked on its own terms, but in psychology, an affordance is what the environment offers an individual, but in design, it's like perceivable actions, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting when we think about it in terms of infrastructure, the affordances of infrastructure. But what you're sort of talking about, Reese, is like the affordance is the affordances of like autonomy being um, maybe privileged or valorized. It's like you know, Michael Hart talks about this in terms of the joys of a political life becoming perceivable mm. for that to also be something that is uh, legitimated by engineers as a logical technical necessity is definitely uh, something I find encouraging. Mm. You know, the energy humanities reminds us that fossil fuel infrastructure is also place based, <laughs> you know, in a in a very material way. And it's not like pipelines look exactly the same as they snake across a continent or whatever. There are 
they do have to contend with the affordances and constraints of particular places. Mm-hmm. And I think about the, the Gulf, you know, the, the Gulf of Mexico and the uh, petrochemical infrastructure around here, you know, you know, there are a lot of reasons why the, that industry is here. There are rivers, ship channels, and the, the weather is such that you can, you can have refineries without exterior walls. You know, the reason that refineries in the Gulf are these big, like tangled masses of pipes is because you don't actually have to build walls around them because it's like, it never gets cold enough to have to worry about freezing. Mm. But I also want to go back to this question of, of ownership because I think it's I think it's really important, and you know it is this is this is kind of the claim of socialist political theory is that ownership, you know, a real material stake in the the things that are required to produce the world, you know, the means of production and the, and the Marxist argo. Um, is what it means to have something like democracy. You have to have some kind of material equality, um, collective ownership over the conditions of making the world in order for there to be real deliberation about what happens, what the future looks like. And I think, you know, it's, I wonder, you know, and this is an open question, you know, does it mean though that we can't have infrastructure in the sense of protocols that govern subtly, invisibly, how we move through the world, you know, do we, do we have to, does affirming something like collective ownership of energy, resources, production, does it, does it mean that we can't also have these hidden structures coordinating our lives. I mean, I think that there's sometimes a sense that infrastructure itself is bad because Mm. it moves us in certain ways and not in other ways and therefore like reduces our agency. But it it, it seems to me that having some kind of real kind of full democratic control over what those protocols are is more important than like not being governed by them at all. Like it seems totally possible to have a system of subtle materialized infrastructural governance that is also just egalitarian and empowering as long as certain conditions are met. Yeah. I think that, you know, is, is um, this sort of uh, horizon of possibility that we want to like pull ourselves into, um, you know, it, it reminds me of uh, uh, Mara Prentice has this book, energy revolution, where um, she says that, you know, like radical transformations of the energy economy uh, have happened in the past, right? Um, So, you know, uh, and she says like an examination of historical energy use indicates that humanity has already undergone several energy consumption revolutions. And thus another transformation is not only possible, but probable from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, But it sounds like you're both saying like, it's just not that simple. Uh, like, you know, it, it's, it's often presented to us as though, like, I, I really like incidentally, Casey, the way that you like affirm things as open questions, um, because the opposite of that is positing like problem closure, but, and, and one of the main ways that I see this sort of, um, 
open question of what kind of transition we're going to see uh, kind of presented is, is that, you know, it's simply the case that humans as such are resistant to change. Like I see that common sense assumption like posed constantly um, and it seems to really shut down any even discussion of, um, you know, liberating uh, uh, the kind of means of production from this pretty chaotic uh, system of, um, you know, racing to pump uh, as as oil becomes more profitable as a result of certain mechanisms. Do you actually sort of take Prentice's point that a radical transformation of the energy economy is probable? And I am not asking here what gives you hope. I'm not asking that question, but I'm more asking like, what inspires the sense that that might be potentially convincing? Because she's obviously convinced. I think I want to ask <clears throat> what, what what we mean by radical in this situation, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Because, you know, th- there's a, a very real sense in which oil and gas companies are currently building and locking down a kind of, you know, start to finish energy production chain that is in some rough sense renewable or sustainable right where wind farms power oil rigs which pump gas which gets used to produce hydrogen and the carbon which is produced from that is captured by ccs plants and all of that is owned more or less by the same people that currently own all the fossil fuel stuff right so that you know yes i think definitely we will produce energy in a different way but radical difference, you know, is that a radical difference or is that just a difference of, of, of technical, you know, use or technology that we're using? Yeah, that's that's the question, I think. And I mean, in a recent piece, you uh, make the point that, you know, and I, I, I like the way that you kind of set it up. You say adrift from the after we are unable to make out the contours of what will be left in the aftermath. So, I mean, like, you know, there's one, there's a, a um, accumulating disasters that are all kind of bundled into, as we've said, like this larger narrative of the climate crisis, the climate catastrophe, the climate emergency, however one wants to kind of almost aesthetically and politically frame it. Um, but we, we sort of um, hesitate to try and make out the contours of what will, what will be left, as it were, in the aftermath. And and perhaps too quickly go to that place of, um, you know, uh, imagining that the crisis will necessitate a radical transformation, as though that's like a fait accompli. So the the thing that was was kind of bubbling up for me when you were saying that was um, so two things. One one is this idea of um, this idea of degrowth, right? The degrowth imaginary, because in the degrowth imaginary, it is possible that infrastructures are severed from uh, growth, right? Destructive growth. And I think it's the scale of infrastructures that is the interesting question at that point, right? So on the one hand, you have infrastructures, which traditionally, large-scale infrastructures, traditionally understood as uh, instruments of domination, colonialization, but also then just, you know, say in Britain, for example, uh, like governmentality and, uh, you know, petrol automobility and, you know, any other negative things that we associate with the way that we've built the world today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
Then there is the kind of degrowth position where, you know, we still want infrastructures. I'm not talking about like not having infrastructures. What would that even look like? Right. Um, but they should be infrastructures which facilitate instead. And then you get these kind of abstract terms, right, which can be filled by lots of different interested parties in different ways. But things like, you know, a beneficial way of living, uh, a kind of like, you know, human positive sort of relationality, a kind of more developing solidarity, um, a kind of democratic citizenship, you know, creativity. And, you know, um, the, the question, and that's beautiful, and I'm really interested in that, is it's yeah. kind of what um, Leduc and um, Cohen call in Beyond Windigo infrastructure, they talk about they they have a phrase which is really nice which is for which essentially means positive life affirming infrastructures right mm-hmm. then the, the question for the kind of degrowth position becomes something like um and this is something that Darren Barney was 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 talking to me about the other day he has this great question which is yes but then the question is one of scale right like what at what size do infrastructures cease to to, to be allowed into the degrowth category, you know, at what scale do infrastructures have to like not get to before they become undemocratic or anti-life-giving? Because that's, I think, yeah, like the, a really great question. And maybe that's a question about ownership as well. Like what size of ownership, you know, what size of community is, is, is owning these infrastructures before they become not the kind of positive type of infrastructures that we're hoping for? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely what you were kind of pointing to earlier, Casey, when you were talking about like connecting people, encouraging solidarity without like erasing specificity, right? Mm. Um, you know, this is like the problem of democracy for Wendy Brown. Like, how do you draw a circle around a polity and say like this is a democratic, self-governing uh, group of people, and and at the same time exists within the sort of you know. Um, you know, global structure of finance capitalism. Is that even like a sustainable idea or way of organizing society? I think we can ask too if size is the issue or the limiting factor. You know, it's sort of intuitive that that's the case. The more people you have, the bigger the area, the harder it is to govern or the harder it is to govern democratically. But I think that's a question, actually. And, you know, like why is collective governance of a large area or a large population necessarily harder? Like that's like kind of a counterintuitive question maybe, but it's one I would want to ask. So I'll just, I'll just say that. The, the scale of technology is a related um, question, right? Like, um, like is, is there a place-based technology that can actually uh, that we can affirm as potentially serving communities? And is that related to this like potential future in which we are not post-infrastructure? Um, uh, you know, because it, like I get the sense that there is almost a, 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 like a necessary aversion to technology within a certain section of the climate movement and maybe specifically the so-called degrowth part of the climate movement. And, and I like I often, you know, I've read the Xenofeminist Manifesto. I'm sympathetic to some of it. And I wonder if there is anything that we sort of miss in being categorically opposed to technology um, or whether on the other hand, it's like important to adopt a position of being 
opposed to like technocratic rule because of like, obviously the unassailable legitimacy of like technological boosterism um, under the conditions established by advanced capitalism. You know, like I'm thinking here about how people talk about, and you've written a lot about this, Reese, technological singularity or like S curves as somehow almost a law of technology. Um, Is that the thing that we need to somehow militate against here? I mean, you know, the S curve is bollocks, right? Like it's, it's, it's a narrative. It's a made up kind of, uh, in some ways, I guess I think of it as a foundational story that other stories are built on. It's, it's, it's a kind of groundwork, I guess, to go back to that phrase, um, that, that, uh, you know, as soon as we believe in that, then a lot of other things become believable. A lot of other stories become believable that are built on. An operative fiction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, for me, it's the shape of science fiction, right? And and I'll say that with the caveat that lots of science fiction critiques it and, and, and you know, antagonizes with it and all of that stuff. But like just very, very broadly and roughly the kind of way that science fiction pitches the, the, the future is coming and developing. It's just based on, you know, continual technological innovation. And the S-curve is, is, is definitely underpinning or a version of that. And the the constant, you know, yeah, movement towards a sort of singularity point, um, which I think is just a figure for like the present moment, right? Like we're we're constantly inventing things that like completely change the way that we live. Like even during my lifetime, things have radically changed in many ways. Um, so yeah, we're in the singularity, I think, right? Like a long singularity is just another way of saying modernity in some ways. But um, mm-hmm. the the thing that I was going to say though and I, I feel like Casey might have something really interesting to say back to me about this is I'm not anti-technology I think that's I, I don't find that to be a useful stance right because what does that even mean to be anti-technology like I am anti-solar panels it doesn't make any any sense solar panels haven't done me any any harm right my my question is to do with the promise that the technologies have and the uh, possibilities that they that they sort of bring with them, you know, they're beautiful, right? Like solar panels are better than oil in, in, in many ways. And, you know, uh, alternative protein tanks that, you know, everyone can have in a village or whatever in this kind of decentralized manner has lots of really positive sides to it. I'm not anti-technology, but the, the question for me is the, the layer beneath that, which is to say who owns them? and who makes them you know there's there's lots of there's lots of interesting talk about energy sovereignty and what that means typically is having lots of solar panels or wind turbines and so on and so forth installed in a particular area and the ownership of those is communally owned and there is a sort of energy sovereignty uh, to that but somebody makes those solar panels and it's not the village right you have to mm. buy them somewhere like there's uh, underneath any pastoral uh, utopian vision of you know s- small scale or relatively large scale uh, green energy futures. There are you know huge uh, sort of laboratory clean level factories which have to produce. You know th- the industrial complex is still there, making mm-hmm. all of the stuff right, and those are owned by certain people which aren't. So I, I find the notion of 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 that kind of energy sovereignty thing. I find it a little bit kind of cracked in that sense or 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 it, it doesn't it doesn't i'm sure there are examples out there that do think this right this is a very blanket statement but like i the, just the term energy sovereignty always prompts me to ask 
but who like makes the stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And who owns the thing that makes the stuff? Um, which seems like a really obvious question. Yeah, it shouldn't be controversial to ask that question. Yeah. You know, it seems like sovereignty is sometimes uh, framed as an escape from dependency. We're, we're sovereign because we produce all of our own energy or something like that. And that detachment yeah. from networks of dependency is somehow good because we're not reliant on whomever else for our power. But of course, that's a kind of thin notion of sovereignty, or it's a kind of exclusionary notion of sovereignty that one, as you're saying, elides the you know, productive networks that make possible the installation of you know, a field of solar panels or whatever, but also which maybe is not adequate to the global scale of the problem that we're dealing with and you know, leaves on the table opportunities for you know, solidaristic exchange, which is something that we've been talking about. Um, and, you know, technology, it's a, like, truism to say it, it's in our circles, but it's a, it's a social relation, right? It's not, it doesn't have a meaning on its own. It acquires a meaning and a function in the context of the political economy, a form of social organization in which it is, is produced and used. And, you know, the... This is something that the petrocultures, energy communities, people have said for a long time. Energy transition without a transformation of the so- social relations of you know, modern capitalism is transition without transformation. You know, it, it seems to solve the problem that actually leaves, leaves the underlying causes intact. And that, I think, from our perspective, would be an inadequate uh, and, and really kind of an illusory transition. So, yeah, this is, and you know, I'll say also on these networks, I think foregrounding production is really important. You know, who, who actually makes solar panels, who's mining the lithium, cobalt, whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure that justice for people who do that is front of mind is really important. And you know, a related question too is is has to do with finance and debt. You know, these things don't get made without massive outlays of initial capital, usually in the form of debt. And you know, that debt is issued by the profiteers of the you know, fossil capitalist economy. And so there are these entanglements linking the past to the future that need to be critically examined if we're going to think about transition beyond just the kind of technical, not even total solution, but sort of promise of a solution that I think Reese is describing as characteristic of the energy transition today. We aren't beholden in what gets called the energy humanities to just talking about like solar energy in terms of technology. Um, or even just in terms of mining. Uh, but yeah, like reminding people it is a social relation like that. That's so important because, you know, it, it, it gets at how sovereignty is also about place and about history and Reese, the stuff you've written focuses on the way that solar 
serves to often erase those histories of like extractive domination that got us to this point. Um, and, you know, you kind of talk about how solar power is, is deepening a lot of these neo-colonial relationships. Um, you know, like, I, I guess, you know, I wondered if you wanted to speak any more to that, like what the underlying relationship or, or the, the kind of underlying uh, reality is that prompted you to write, for example, that solar facilitates a narrative in which the present can continue without radical change. So, you know, as always, it's it's coming from a, an initial sort of narrative orientation for me. Um, and there is something about solar as a technology, as a social relation, and as a, a, a kind of material object with a particular set of aesthetics and, uh, you know, functional affordances, I suppose, as in the way that it works, um, that means that it offers up this hope of a fresh start, right? So, you know, the initial thing is just noticing the kinds of ways that solar is narrativized and aestheticized, which, you know, involve bright skies, you know, sunshine, shiny solar panels, all very obvious stuff, nothing particularly complicated there. Mm. They have a sort of lightness to them, which folds over quite neatly, I think, and quite often into a sort of sense of weightlessness, um, which is to say that there is something about solar and the way it lends itself to being presented aesthetically, particularly and narratively, which elides all of the work that goes into making them and all of the, you know, and that includes all of the really unfair labor relations and all of the awful kind of mining and all of the kind of toxic productions and so on. All of that stuff appears to disappear um, beneath the reflective surface of solar, right? And this, this is like a heavily aesthetic argument. Obviously, you can immediately ask the question, how does this get made? And you can follow the supply chains as you know as we have done, and that whole appearance disappears. But that practice of of uh, infrastructural inversion, I guess to, to to use that term, where you follow the supply chain, where you think about where everything came from, and where you see the the object not as a kind of closed fetish object, but as a a product of a whole series of social relations and productive relations, that's not a thing that people do, right? So, you know, my interest is in the way that it's presented and the force that it has in discourse. And that force, I think, is a promissory force. And the thing it promises is a kind of wiping the slate clean. Um, it sort of offers us this belief that all of the mistakes of the past can be, you know, undone, buried, if you like, or, or covered over by gleaming solar panels, right? And there's something really interesting about the affordances of solar in the way that it can coat things as well, um, in the way that it covers buildings, for example, with, you know, the new uh, innovations in, uh, for example, like these beautiful solar windows, right? Or solar wallpaper or solar paint. It's such a surface quality mm. to this technology mm -hmm. that it can, it can quite literally, you know, hold out this promise of, taking something like a city, for example, which is, you know, deeply imbricated in all of these horribly polluting and, and, and kind of um, destructive, like infrastructural networks. And it can just 
cover it, right? All the buildings must be covered by, by solar. Right, and it, right. in covering, it seals off somehow. It makes sovereign, right? In, in energy terms, it makes the building sovereign in some sense, or it appears to, at least. Um, and that kind of, that action I find fascinating. It's like we don't have to do the difficult work of social or political transition. We can just coat everything in solar, and that in some, I mean, this is a fantasy, obviously, right? But that in some way liberates us, right? It makes us weightless. It removes us from all of these difficult connections to the earth, all of these ways that we have a, a footprint on the environment, right? It just it just kind of lifts us off from all of that. And in doing so, I think, and this is the sort of, you know, end point of the argument, it, it sort of promises to remove us from, from history in that sense, right? We become this almost stable state, utopia right right um where there is no kind of uh hmm there are no negative externalities anymore i suppose would be one way of putting it right yeah you found a way to repurpose um infrastructure like you found a way to take a parking lot and make it more rational and efficient by coating it in solar panels like that gets extolled as somehow visionary yeah (laughs) you know Or co- covering water, like w- literally like covering water with floating solar panels um, as somehow visionary, uh, mm-hmm. as though these are unused and unuseful landscapes and you make them useful again by creating a mm-hmm. situation in which they're generating power. Um, yeah, the idea that that is visionary feels, you know, like it, it makes invisible like other things for sure. Yeah, um, I'll just just footnote that with... Um... I think my favorite example of this, right? The, there's there's a book that came out from um, uh, Varun Sivaram called "Taming the Sun," um, and it's you know this kind of solar boosterish uh, text, which is apparently very rational. And it starts, and this is the fascinating part for me. It starts with a, a kind of solar utopian vision, and it's about ten pages long. And what's particularly interesting, I suppose, f- for us as kind of energy humanists and and people on the left is just how poor and thin the utopianism is. Because um, at one point he talks about uh, solar not just coating the uh, the brilliant skyscrapers in the gleaming cities, but also the, uh, the kind of uh, corrugated iron roofs of shanty towns. Oh, wow. So the, the kind of utopianness is extended to everyone having some energy, basically, right? But there are still shanty towns, um, you know. It's, it's kind of, and and this is the kind of gleaming future, right? Which is quite literally the present, painted over. And just, you know that as a as a, as a sort of, and this is a serious book by someone who advises politicians and stuff, right? You know, this is this is utopianism. Um, yeah, I I kind of more generally wanted to ask about labor in terms of the labor that we, I guess, are doing right now um, in this moment in which we, you know, to gesture back to what you're, you know, the phrase you used to describe the kind of fatalistic way uh, a place like Bangladesh is imagined, like we, we feel as though we're consigned to total annihilation. And so like the labor of intellectuals, I think is differently sort of scrutinized in this moment and maybe deservedly so. Um, you know, Roman Feli has also written that quote, only an intensification of class struggle and the conquest of state power 
by movement seeking to change how these states function can force the transformation we need. I, you know, I'm not so sure that academia is focused on accomplishing those things. Um, but, you know, Reese, you've said that uh, reshaping anything requires energy. Um, I wonder what it means to put your energy into being a public intellectual in this like moment of scorched earth and disappearing coastlines. I mean, do you ever worry, I guess, that you're misdirecting your energy? <laughs> I mean, I worried about that from the very moment I started doing a PhD, to be completely honest with you. Right, yeah. Um, that's, that particular worry has been um, almost like a driving force in the mm -hmm. direction of my career. And I've def I'm, I'm nowhere near um, being comfortable with uh, where I'm at, but um, I'm less uncomfortable at the moment, I think. And r really briefly, uh, I guess the, the, the qualities of that lessened discomfort are thinking about what I do less as research and dissemination and more about collaboration, I suppose, and community building. There's something about, so I'm, I'm, think, I'm writing a talk for, for next week, actually, and, and I'm thinking about this word dissemination, which is in the abstract, right, of the thing that I'm talking about, um, how, you know, novel ways to disseminate knowledge. And dissemination is, you know, the broadcasting of seeds, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe the, the, the troublesome version of academia or the one that I find troublesome focuses on, on that moment when you cast the seed out and focuses less on the actually important moment, which is where the seed takes root. And I think, I guess I'm, I'm interested in, and this is in no way to say that this is the answer, um, but, but I'm interested in the research that I do to be informed by questions that perhaps aren't mine initially, right? But which are questions which have some purchase for someone in the world um, so like working with non-academic partners and so on would be the way to phrase that, you know, within the academy. Um, but 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 finding the questions outside of myself and outside of the books, I suppose, and then finding ways of working towards being able to answer those questions helpfully. And then, you know, the answers to those questions having some kind of material impact because you're answering them with someone who then goes and does something because of it, right? that's it's limited as an answer but that's kind of where i'm at now and um it feels a little better yeah well and i know casey you've written um for after oil that scholarship that has political aspirations as the energy humanity seems to but which is divorced from concrete political projects will always wrestle with doubts about its role and efficacy um, that is, I think, a line that a lot of us have sort of taken with us um, since you wrote that. Um, so I wondered if you wanted to speak to uh, what Reese was saying. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge question, <laughs> probably bigger than, you know, we really have time to fully wrestle with. But, um, but it's an important one. And Reese, I really appreciate your, the way that you're describing about not just disseminating, but also thinking about what it means to tend the seeds. Um, through collaboration. I think that's, that's really important. You know, I would say first, I'm, I've become more defensive in recent months, maybe of critical reading <laughs> as a kind of 
important political work. And, you know, Riz a moment ago said something like, you know, it's sort of maybe obvious to think through the infrastructural inversion beyond the panel to to the labor and the supply chains, but nobody's doing it. (laughs) You know, it's true. Somebody has to do it or else or else it won't get done. And there's a, it's, it's easy to sort of think that we're all kind of talking to each other, we're having the same conversation in our small groups, but actually it's really powerful to bring that kind of analysis, which is really informed by our training, I think, as literary scholars, as people who think about aesthetics, about hermeneutics, about interpretation, taking that and bringing it into other conversations so that we can kind of look beyond the surfaces and actually think about the you know, social and cultural structures that inform kind of what what is presented to us, and you know I think this is especially important in the context of the climate crisis and the emergency logic that attends it. There is this desire for immediacy, you know, immediate solutions, but also an immediacy of meaning, so that when we look at an image of a wildfire or you know, particular, you know, a solar panel or whatever, there's a, there's a temptation to already know what that means and for that meaning to already insert itself into particular narratives, but also into a particular political sensibility or sense of what the right way of thinking about it is, what the right response is. And that kind of immediacy, absence of interpretation, absence of ambiguity and analysis, I think, lends itself to a kind of anti-political politics where there's no space for deliberation or discomfort or friction. And so as critical scholars, I think that there is a huge amount of value in the labor of critique. But, you know, I, I also want to affirm that thing that I wrote, which is it needs to be inserted into conversations and struggles that are more properly political in the sense that they're oriented towards uh, a particular kind of change with you know people who have some kind of interest in that change and who are organizing to assert themselves as a group for it um, and you know that can be done through the kinds of consultations that I know Reese does a lot of with community partners it can also happen you know, in and through the university. And you know, I would just very briefly want to plug kind of university or education labor organizing, where mm-hmm. you know, people in academic institutions try to organize themselves as workers, as teachers and researchers, to exert more control over the structures of those in- institutions, you know, what kinds of questions get asked, what kinds of research is being done, how it's disseminated, and how the, the seeds, as Reese put it, are being tended. All of all of those things, not just like just critical work, just political work. They're, they can work together. Thank you so much. This is, I mean, like a, the amount of energy that you've put into just this is, uh, you know, an absolute privilege for me. I, I really enjoyed talking to you both today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Casey, especially. That was really, really great. No, thanks. Thanks to you, Scott. Thanks to you, Reese.